Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Cray Bolger and I'm joined by Michael Pratz. Great to see you, Cray. I'm excited to talk about this topic. Me I mean, too. this is this is all you. I know this is a a passion and a pet project of yours, so I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts. Yes. So I owe a shout out to Dr. Nick Thayuni at the University of Michigan, who I might have shamed a few years ago about his love of TCD, um, because now I love TCD. And I remember telling him many moons ago, what the heck, this isn't going to apply to emergency medicine. And now I'm eating crow and loving some transcranial dopplers. So today we're going to talk about a paper called Transcranial Doppler to Detect Early Abnormalities in Cerebral Hemodynamics Following Traumatic Brain Injury in Adult Patients. So this was published in Research and Opinion in Anesthesia and Intensive Critical Care in September 2020 by Ali et al. from uh, Egypt. Zagazig. Yeah, I wasn't even going to try that one. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's not the right way to say it, but it looks like a cool word. Zagazig, Egypt. Yes. I just found out my family is like from this crazy place in Sweden with more consonants in the word that I can pronounce. I'm like, I give up. (laughs) Sweden it is. All right. So some background on transcranial Doppler. Maybe you're where I was five years ago and you're like, you all are crazy. Why are we talking about this? So transcranial Doppler has really been a mainstay for many decades in the neuro ICU. And it's one of the primary modalities that they use to evaluate for vasospasm for both stroke and head-injured patients. Usually it's done with a continuous Doppler, kind of pencil Doppler probe, typically by neurosonographers. So there's a whole branch of sonographers dedicated solely to the use of transcranial Doppler. And the reason being, it's pretty complex to interpret um, the way they do it. So you see stacked waveforms coming across the screen with no B-mode image. And they're so good at this, they can tell by the shape, the velocity, um, and the depth, what vessel we're looking at. When I've looked at this with them, I've felt baffled. Um, I know they've came and done several talks with our fellows, and I still, every time, have to like relearn it. It looks like magic. It does look like magic. They're like, clearly that's the MCA, and you just smile and nod. They also use transcranial Doppler quite a bit in pediatrics, who we know... Little humans, we don't like to radiate them. Um, They use it both intrauterine and in neonates to assess for ventricular size, midline shift, and assess for intracranial hemorrhage. And the reason being, their skulls are very thin. They have open fontanelles. We've got great windows for assessing this. And rather than doing CTs or MRIs, which typically require sedation and or radiation, transcranial Doppler is a nice, safe, easy approach where mom can be holding and or nursing the baby while we're doing the imaging. Um, which is a pretty cool concept. I probably haven't told you yet why this is important to the emergency room, but we see these patients, right? We see patients in acute care settings with vasospasm, with head injury, with stroke, with concern for cerebral perfusion issues, with concern for elevated ICPs, or even patients that we're pretty convinced are verging on brain death or brain injury, but we don't have a lot of those tools to assess them. And even more so, we see patients every day with head injuries that are mild and concussion. And so that's where the newer research is coming out in transcranial Dopplers, all these applications at the bedside, not necessarily using this continuous wave Doppler, but using probes we already have in our hands, like the phase array probe. So what this study was asking is, 
can we use transcranial Doppler to screen for abnormalities in cerebral blood flow and early prognosticate traumatic brain injuries? Can we use it in those first eight hours to say, I see some abnormalities, I'm concerned, so that we can prep the patient, prep the team, and really have good talks with our families about what the likely outcomes are gonna be for this patient. I haven't found much evidence on transcranial Doppler in a point of care manner, meaning you know, we, there's plenty of studies when it's being done by the neurosonographers, like you mentioned, but you don't see too many studies about at least real studies. There's been some reviews and there's been some perspectives on how it can be used in the ICUs and in the emergency departments, but not a lot of studies providing good evidence that that use is meaningful. This study was cool. These, this was a population of adults that had traumatic brain injury in the ICU. They had to be within eight hours since their diagnosis of TBI. They had to have good windows into their skull. No arrhythmias or valvular stenosis, no arrest, no polytrauma, no organ failure. So they cut out a lot of the super sick trauma TBI patients. And just a note, they went through all their normal practices for their TBI patients in this ICU, and they seemed pretty legitimate. Everybody had an arterial line for close monitoring of their blood pressure. They kept the maps above 90. They monitored cerebral perfusion pressure, kept that above 60. They collected data in a prospective observational fashion. So it kind of went like this. Patients came in with head trauma, went up to the ICU. They got a TCD by the ICU provider after the initial resuscitation, which based on their median time usually occurred within an hour, which actually was only about five hours from their actual injury. So that's pretty good. They did a TCD and also looked at the carotid and we'll talk about what they did. It was little bit more complicated than things that we will generally be doing with TCD, but I don't think it's out of the scope of what a lot of ultrasound people are capable of. They grouped people based on their Glasgow Coma Scale, which most of us are familiar with, and they made it a dichotomous greater than 8, which they called mild or moderate TBI, and less than or equal to 8, which they termed severe TBI. And then as far as the outcomes, another fascinating thing about this is they actually looked at the neuro outcomes of these patients. And for that, they used also a scale from Glasgow, the Glasgow Outcome Scale. And we'll have links to those in the show notes if you're not familiar with those. So the primary outcome from what we could discern, because they never really said exactly what the main thing was they wanted to find, but it seemed to be that they're comparing the incidence of abnormal TCD findings between these two groups of either mild-moderate TBI or severe TBI. And then secondarily, but no less interesting, they were doing a logistic regression analysis to see which factors, including all these TCD indices, correlated with the poor outcomes as measured by the GOS. So, Let me talk a little bit about these ultrasounds. The ultrasound was done by an experienced ICU staff member. So didn't really explicitly say who this was. I'm assuming that it was a some sort of clinical practitioner, but not really said what kind of training they received or how they came to be doing this. They used a two megahertz probe and a little bit unclear if they used a B mode imaging with the phased array, which is capable of doing some of these transcranial measurements or if they used like the traditional TCD probe where you don't actually see the B-mode imaging, you're kind of using pulse Doppler, setting it to a certain depth and sampling there. So unclear there, but 
they got two measurements in the first 72 hours of the patient's stay, and then they got daily measurements until seven days after that TBI or discharge from the ICU. And they would also, I liked this, they would additionally check TCD if there was a deterioration in their neurologic status. Now, for those of you that don't do TCD every day, there's going to be a lot of acronyms in here that you don't know. I, myself, was very confused and had to make a little key. Let me go over some of these, the most important ones, and then you can read this yourself and, and figure it out. But a couple things that they mention constantly and are part of their main outcomes. EDV, end diastolic velocity, and then PSV, peak systolic velocity. If you're looking at your Doppler wave, the peak systolic velocity is going to be that first peak, the highest velocity that it achieves during systole. That's kind of intuitive. Diastolic flow velocity is actually going to be what's happening in diastole right before that peak. So what's the end diastolic velocity? The names actually make sense after all. Uh, and then they did a couple other calculations. The mean flow velocity, that's kind of like incorporating both the systolic and diastolic into giving you one number. I equate that to like a map in my head. And then PI, the pulsatility index. The pulsatility index is actually called the Gosling pulsatility index. And if I may, Cray, perhaps we could refer to that from now on as the Ryan Gosling pulsatility index. Because I think it was probably invented by the actor. I agree with you for sure. I appreciate that we're on the same page there. <laughs> So I know that was a lot of letters and stuff, but basically for their protocol, they looked at bilateral middle cerebral arteries, the internal carotid artery. They measured over 10 cardiac cycles. They looked for all these systolic and diastolic and calculated the Ryan-Gosling index, some other ratios. In case you're worried, they used pretty typical cutoffs for a lot of these things. For the Ryan-Gosling index, greater than 1.3 was abnormal. For the end diastolic velocity, less than 25 was abnormal. And then they also looked at a combination of some of these things to figure out if there was vasospasm. And Cray, you've, you know a lot more about this stuff than me, but in my simple mind, the way that I am trying to think about this is that low diastolic flow, so a low EDV, is bad because there's less blood going to the brain in diastole, which, you know, you always want the brain being well perfused. And a high pulsatility index is also bad because that means that there's a large difference between the systolic and diastolic flow. And so therefore, that's also bad for the brain. Does that simplification make sense? Yes, very much so. So anytime there's an obstruction or a spasm, your post-obstructive flow is high. So that's your peak systolic velocity goes up. And the way we diagnose brain death is a, initially you'll see an absence of diastolic flow with subsequently decreasing peak systolic velocities. You want a nice ratio of the two. Essentially your brain wants constant, consistent blood flow. And as we get irregular or peaks and valleys with our perfusion to the brain is where we start to see problems. So worse outcomes, um, which typically correlate with worse injuries, higher pressures, more vasospasm. So when a nice steady state, solid diastolic blood flow, constant flow to the brain with some peaks in your systolic velocities, but not drastic peaks in your systolic velocities. You want a nice, consistent homeostatic environment for your brain. We will try to put some pictures in the notes because we recognize that these Doppler things are very visual. So check out the website, go to this post, you'll see some pictures to explain it, or at least some links to something. So results, 
They had 66 patients, 42 male and 22 female, which is pretty classic distribution of our trauma patients. Their mean age was 32, which is also pretty standard for trauma patients, younger, more heavily male. Um, and I, this is really important too, because a lot of these values that we're using, your cerebral perfusion normals change with age. And so as long as the majority of your patients were below 60, they could use the cutoffs they had. But if they exceeded 60, 70, 80, that's actually where we start to see changes in what our normal values are for both, for all of your cerebral blood flow. So the fact that their patient population was consistent and young is good. Uh, 54.5% of their patients had a GCS greater than 8, 45.5 were less than or equal to 8. So pretty even split on the brain severity if you use the GCS of 8 as your cutoff. TCD was performed within an hour on all of their patients, which is really impressive. So they did have some significant results. So these were results that were statistically significant. In patients with a GCS greater than 8, they had higher end diastolic volumes. Just a quick note that when Cray says end diastolic volumes, she actually means end diastolic velocities. This comes up a few times in this section. So an average of 37.8 versus 22.5 in the lower GCS scale. They also had lower pulsatility indexes. The Ryan Gosling index. The Ryan Gosling index. So lower pulsatility indices. So meaning that there was less difference between their systolic peak velocity and their end diastolic velocity. 1.02 in your GCS greater than 8 and 1.76 in your GCS less than 8. And this was statistically significant. So in the group with the GCS less than or equal to 8, they had very low end diastolic volumes. Many of them were less than 25 centimeters per second. So 46.7% had very low end diastolic volumes versus 11% of the high GCS group. Vasospasm and high Lingard ratios were also found more frequently in the GCS less than or equal to eight group, but that was not a statistically significant difference. We've established blood flow differences in the two GCS groups. What does that mean? Like, who cares? So when they look at the Glasgow outcome scale and how it correlated with their admission TCDs, the end diastolic volumes in the pulsatility index had statistically significant correlations with the Glasgow outcome scale. A GCS less than eight on admission had a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 72% for predicting a poor out neurologic outcome. End diastolic velocities less than 25 had an 88% sensitivity and 85% specificity of predicting a poor neurologic outcome. Pulsatility index greater than 1.3 had a 91% sensitivity and an 89% specificity of predicting poor neurologic outcomes. And those two, the pulsatility index and the end diastolic velocity, were statistically significant. So I'm going to try to sum up all that stuff because I want to make sure I'm not getting confused. But <laughs> thanks for breaking it down because, I mean, what Cray has done here is really fantastic. If you read this article and try to sort through it like she did, it is uh, quite a challenge. Here's my take that I think is the, the bare bones of this. It seems like if you had a worse head injury, a more severe TBI, you had 
definitely some changes in your cerebral blood flow as measured by TCD. And then if we look at the outcomes of these patients, it seems that those measures, specifically the diastolic velocity and the Rhine-Gosling pulsatility index, those seem to outperform the GCS and the other measurements in predicting a poor outcome. That's pretty cool. And honestly, the pulsatility index, I'm super impressed by. A 91% sensitivity and 89% specificity for predicting poor neurologic outcome. And that's within an hour of admission we have that information in our hands. So I would love to see this study reproduced with maybe that upper group broken out into two separate groups, the mild and moderate separated out rather than lumped together, and with a bigger population to see does this really pan out? Because how nice would it be when you have that talk with a family after a bad car accident or a bad fall to have this information in your hands to help them process what's happening to their family member with much more certainty. That's where I really get excited about transcranial Doppler in our trauma patients is helping us risk stratify them so that our patients' families have more and better evidence in their hands to make decisions for their family members. I did have a couple concerns about some of this data. It's like we're, we're switching roles where now you're the one putting it forward and I'm the one that's saying, uh, let's pump the brakes a little bit. I mean, transcranial Doppler, of course, this is in the ICU setting, and I think it is pretty well established that could be useful. And I will not even mention the fact that some of this may not be as useful in the emergency department or acute care setting extremely early on in the course. But apart from that, I think these are pretty complicated measurements. They don't really go into how much training these providers needed. And not only are they a little bit challenging to get a good window, maybe you need some specific probe, depending on what they actually used. And then we also know that a lot of these Doppler measurements are very angle dependent. So for somebody who hasn't done transcranial Doppler before, to get this reproducible Doppler signal time and time again, looking for changes, calculating, all these different things, that may be a challenge and could potentially limit the practicality of this. I'm with you. I completely agree. Uh, having taught some providers TCD, I, I think that the learning curve is not as steep as we conceptualize it to be, but I agree with you. Um, this is not like a go adopt this in your practice tomorrow, but I think this is a really cool opening in the door for a subset of patients that we don't have a lot of useful tools for right now for neuroprognostication. I 100% agree. And Cray, I know you'll like this. While I was looking into this stuff, I found this really fascinating study that we can uh, link to that's titled Pre-Hospital Transcranial Doppler and Severe TBI, a pilot study. In this study, they did pre-hospital TCDs and actually used it to determine if they should give mannitol before the patients got to the emergency department kind of crazy, but I think that there are potential applications for this in the pre-hospital setting as well. Ultrasound is a portable, valuable tool, and our pre-hospital providers are intelligent people and can learn to use this tool. And once we get it integrated by the regulatory bodies into their scope of practice, I think the sky's the limit. Just like us, they wanna provide the best possible care and the most focused care to their patients possible. Well, I think this has been a really cool study. So let me summarize this for you. 
This is a prospective observational study out of Egypt in an ICU setting. They had 66 patients with TBI and diastolic velocity and the Ryan Gosling pulsatility index were more commonly abnormal in the group with severe TBI. And when they did a regression analysis, these measurements seemed to correlate with worse neurologic outcomes. Take home points from this article. Transcranial Doppler is feasible and non-invasive means of assessing cerebral blood flow in the setting of traumatic brain injury. A low end diastolic volume or high pulsatility index are more common in patients with severe traumatic brain injury, and these values tend to correlate with poor neurologic outcomes. Lastly, more research is needed with more point-of-care providers and with a larger patient population and a better breakdown of the level of brain injury to really assess if this is something that we can apply in our acute care settings. And thanks, as always, to these authors for putting forth this intriguing work really cool stuff and thanks to you our faithful listeners for coming back time and time again if you want to find out more about ultrasound gel you can go to our website ultrasoundgel.org or talk to any of us on twitter where we would be happy to chat until then we will talk to you later more more my hope is that everybody will start calling it the Ryan Gosling pulsatility index, and then eventually Ryan Gosling will contact me and send me a, a thank you letter. <laughs>